You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name is Tanya Ramos and I'm a clinical nurse educator at the Royal Children's Hospital Allied Health and Nursing Education Outreach Program. I'm also a clinical nurse specialist here at RCH in the Recovery Room, or PACU. Today I'm joined by Lauren Jorgensen, clinical support nurse of PACU and SIM team fellow, as well as Jake LaRossi, who is one of our senior nurses and associate unit manager at RCH. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tan. It's so great to have you both here, both being, you know, specialists in the recovery room. Um, and that's really what I wanted to talk about today, about looking after children in the recovery room or the post-anesthetic care room, PACU, different places refer to it, you know, obviously differently. I guess, Lauren, I want to really start off with you. What is the role of the paediatric recovery nurse? Thanks, Tan. Um, so the role of the paediatric uh, PACU nurse is initially mainly ensuring that our patients are nice and safe. So we're looking after their airway, breathing and circulation. We're managing their pain and potential post-operative nausea and vomiting. Um, and we're just wanting to get them ward ready. Yeah. Um, so they're nice and safe and, and comfortable and ready to go to the ward or um, if they're being discharged home to our day of surgery centre so they can go home. Yeah, awesome. And, and Jay, can you let me know what's the difference, I guess, between looking after adults in recovery mm. and children in recovery? Yeah, of course. So um, once again, thank you. There is a little bit of a difference in regards to managing things like anxiety and pain and whatnot with patients who are a lot younger when they're waking up from an anaesthetic. Um, obviously, they do have a higher level of anxiety because they aren't really aware, as aware at least as adults are, of what's going on um, in the post-operative environment. You know, we do do a lot of work preoperatively to set them up to hopefully wake up and rouse a little bit more. Um, happier and better, but um, sometimes with the, the younger kids, especially of the toddler age group and young school children as well, they obviously don't have a full grasp of what is actually going on and why they are actually in the hospital on that day. We and do, let me actually yeah. let me explore that with you mm. because that's actually a really good point. And obviously, knowing from working clinically that sometimes some of these children, yes, they are in, at a stage where developmentally they don't understand what's mm. happening. Yep. But also there are some some children who present who their parents actually haven't told them mm. um, that they're coming into surgery. What yeah. are some of the things that some of the challenges, I guess, that you both, you can both answer these, yeah. that you would experience looking after a child who's presented for surgery, perhaps major or minor, who isn't aware that that's actually what they're here for today? It is a bit of a challenging thing, obviously, for both the patient and the parent themselves. So the parent can, you know, feel a lot of anxiety and stress, just obviously telling their own child what they're going to be having done to them, at yeah. the, you know, at the hospital on that day because sometimes it can be definitely traumatic and stressful for both parties. And um, I think what we try and get across to parents as much as possible is that you have to be a little bit more honest with your child sometimes, yeah. unfortunately, even if it is something quite negative because um, it can have long-lasting effects because if the patient does need to come back for recurring treatment or surgeries later on in their life, if they do start off with that negative experience, it can definitely have a long lasting effect. And um, whenever they come in for any kind of procedural management, or even if they have to go to their local GP for something, they may associate that with that initial negative experience of, you know, not being told what's going on and that fear of the unknown. And then, um, yeah, you're sort of setting them up to fail if you don't address yeah. that earlier on. So That's so true. I think it's really important to, yeah, just be a bit brutally honest, but also 
try and make it an experience that is a bit more relaxing and fun. So like at the hospital mm-hmm. here we try and get play therapists and whatnot involved and obviously yeah. not all hospitals have that kind of resources but try and get them into a more playful sort of tone. So playing with the anaesthetic masks and getting them familiar yeah. with some of the equipment just so they do feel a bit more relaxed when they do have to get anaesthetized. yeah. Yeah, and I know, um, Lauren, like early parental presence for us in recovery is really essential Can you talk about the importance of that and why I guess we get parents to come in, you know, when the child is stable, but hopefully when the child's still asleep so that they can be there when their child wakes up? Yeah, so I think it's definitely a positive for both the parents and for the the child or patient um, to have their parents there early. I like to get parents in as soon as I possibly can once the the patient is um, nice and safe because parents know their children best um, That's right. and when yeah. they're waking up, it's mm. nice for them to see their parents um, and have a familiar face rather than a nurse sort of over the bed that they've never met or seen before. And I think that it helps with parents' anxiety as well. And when parents are less anxious, then that helps with the child being less anxious as well. You've touched on something that that's actually really important. And I guess that nurses working in a recovery room or in the perioperative environment with adults actually don't tend to deal with families or caregivers that much. But, you know, the importance of actually having the parent that you said they know their child best or the carer knows their child best, what does that do for you clinically in terms of assessing pain, all those sorts of things? Yes, I think it's really important. Um, I think sometimes when you don't know a patient or child very well and they wake up distressed and upset, um, we can mistake that potentially for pain. It may be that it is pain, but speaking to the parents, what do you think is going on? Do you think that your child's uncomfortable or in pain? And sometimes it might just be that they know their child and they're like, this is how they wake up after a sleep every day. Yeah. <laughs> so, And I know um, that that's yeah. happened to me before where I've actually called out and said, hey, mm. um, Jake, can you please, because the parents hasn't been there, the child's woken up really quickly. And I'll say, I'll say, hey, Jake, can you go and get me some analgesia? All of the siren, the parent walks in and mm. they say, oh, yeah, oh, this is fine. This is how little Billy wakes up every day. Yeah. So. And they're just hungry. They might just need some food and then they're actually okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to add on to that as well. It's really important, especially when you have patients who have sort of developmental delays or disabilities and whatnot too. Mm -hmm. Um, Parental guidance is incredibly like valuable as well because, you know, we have patients who have disabilities that means they're nonverbal and, you know, they give off different cues compared to um, a patient who can verbally tell you what is wrong with them. So um, having the the patient's parents or guardians, whoever, by their bedside when they are in a nonverbal state is really important. I think in being able to pinpoint what is actually wrong with the patient and why they are distressed so you can actually yeah. get on top of that a lot quicker. Correct, because as Lauren said, it could be pain. That's right. It could be yeah. nausea and vomiting. Mm. They could be having, you know, for our patients who have cerebral palsy, mm-hmm. a muscle spasm. It. it could be nausea. Yeah, there's so many things. So um, I think if, you know, not that we're wrapping up already, but I think one of the biggest take-home messages for nursing um, children after they have an anaesthetic and surgery is definitely that early parental presence getting, you know, and I do education, obviously I go to all different places and I see that sometimes that's one of the things that people don't do as well. And I guess that's because of confidence and exposure, but that's something I guess we really encourage here at RCH. I just want to move on to sort of going back laws to what you talked about in regards to, you know, getting patients ward ready. And I just wanted to talk about what are some of the indicators that as a recovery nurse, as a pediatric recovery nurse, tell you that the patient's either ready to go to the ward or ready to go to day centre, or perhaps we need to escalate that, which I'm going to ask Jake about that later. Here at RCH, we have like a discharge criteria that our patients need to meet. So there's no time limit. 
Um, it's just ensuring that the patient, um, that their observations are within age-appropriate limits. Um, and or, what, do you, what tools do you use to tell you that the patient's within normal limits? Yeah, so we refer to the Victor chart and we're and then we also sort of refer to their baseline. So whatever they were preoperatively um, as well, we take that into consideration. We make sure that they're nice and warm. So we'd like their discharge um, uh, core temperature to be between above 36 or 36.6 for neonates, or we can accept 35.5 and above depending what their baseline was. Um, right. Or if they're sitting up eating an icy pole, we're mm-hmm. not going to try and pop a bear hugger on them and, and warm them up. We want their sedation score to be less than two, so they could still be really sleepy, but we can easily rouse them and they yep. wake up and can comfortably fall back to sleep. And just what sedation scale would you use in recovery? Uh, so we use the University of Michigan sedation score um, scale. Yeah, Fantastic. And that's a good indicator. You said two or less, so two being? Moderately sedated. Yep. Um, so that's when, the, yeah, they can, they might be nice, they might be sleepy, but we can easily rouse them. Excellent. Because I think that's one of the questions, I guess, when I do outreach education, I get asked the most is, you know, they're no longer an, under the anaesthetic. They're just having a sleep having now. A sleep, yeah. yeah. And moderately sedated can be a little bit confusing as well because yeah. it sounds like they're maybe too sedated. But yeah, moderately sedated is 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 fine. Yeah. So that sounds like quite a robust, but we're looking at the child um, in terms of their vitals and their observations, but also it's to what they're doing in terms of their level of sedation and alertness um, as well before their discharge. Let me ask you, Jake, can you tell me how you would escalate a child that perhaps was really unrousable? Maybe their OBS were exceeding current MET criteria and practices. What are the sort of things that pediatric recovery room nurses here at RCH would be doing? Yeah, so we do have a little bit of an escalation process that we sort of go through in our heads at least, but also we do have guidelines that we follow too but obviously the first thing you sort of do is just seek out some senior help so if you're by the bedside and you're a little bit concerned about some of the things that you're seeing with your patient you can obviously call someone else that's more senior like myself as an AUM I do get called around a lot to review patients and then um, sort of we can troubleshoot from there if it need be we can escalate obviously to the medical team too so um, generally, the treating medical team that we will uh, initially contact is the anaesthetic team. Obviously, it's dependent on what is the reason for the patient's deterioration as well. So, I mean, working in a post-anaesthetic care unit, um, it's generally going to be anaesthetic related. But yeah. um, sometimes, obviously, depending on the patient's procedure, it may also be surgical related. So, yeah, making sure you can sort of pinpoint what's going on and, you know, do a proper assessment of the patient and find out where the problem is, I guess, stemming and then, yeah, get to the appropriate treating team and then seek their advice as well. And in collaboration, we generally do make a good plan in what they need done before they're safe to be discharged to the ward or wherever else they'll be going. And say, for example, they were due to go to the ward, but um, obviously they're they're not, you know, they're not ward ready or that, you know, maybe too complex for that receiving ward to care for that child. Mm -hmm. What would happen then? Okay. So, um, yeah, if there is complexities um, for us discharging the patient, say their criteria is out of range or if, yeah, we don't think they're going to be appropriate for the ward that they've been allocated to go to, well, first thing we'll, we'll discuss that with anesthetics and see if, they do want to do criteria changes because we can always change the criteria and the limits for the patient's Victor chart, for example, as Lauren was talking about, because we know that we have patients of all shapes and sizes and all different kinds of um, comorbidities as well. So some of the patient's baselines will be a lot different to what the chart is telling us. So take that into consideration. Take that into consideration, yeah, Yeah, because, um, you know, for example, a child with a 
very high BMI or a very low BMI will have significantly different cardiovascular properties to a patient with a normal BMI. And obviously, if they have other disabilities and stuff, that will also affect that. Yeah. We have other escalation as well. If they're meant to be going to the mm-hmm. ward, however, we don't think is appropriate, we can get the um, ICU outreach team yeah. um, involved. So at RCH, we have an outreach team that stems out of the intensive care unit. Um, it's run by medical team and nursing team. So it's a team that uh, will come and review the patient in the post-anesthetic care unit and then deem whether they are an appropriate admission for ICU or if they're sort of borderline, say maybe a HDU type of patient, they can be sent to the ward under the guidance of the outreach team. And then what the outreach team will do is constantly monitor them on the ward, make frequent visits to the ward and also discuss with the ward what kind of care that patient's going to need. So, yeah, they've sort of got like another little overwatch from ICU making sure that the ward's going to be comfortable taking care of this patient. Yeah, it's like an extra layer of protection for that patient. Yeah, and it makes it easier for admission to the intensive care unit if the patient were to acutely deteriorate as well. Obviously, we do everything to avoid that, but Mm -hmm. um, it's just a lot more safer to know that the intensive care team also has information on this patient if we were to decide that the patient were to go to the ward or even if they were to just sit in, to rec- sit in the recovery unit for a little mm-hmm. bit longer than um, expected as well. And then the last thing I'll touch on as well is just um, obviously for patients who are acutely deteriorating in recovery. So obviously, you know, within seconds they start to deteriorate. Yeah. Um, and that always... deterioration would be an airway deterioration yeah, typically? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Most of the time it is an airway deterioration such as a laryngospasm. It's a, probably the most common yeah. um, acute emergency that we yeah. see in recovery, um, especially post-anesthetic care. And it's way more common laryngospasm in children than it is in adults. Yeah, definitely, because obviously some of the smaller children have much smaller airways, so the smallest amount of inflammation or edema just causes a Mm -hmm. complete obstruction. So we have an emergency bell system, which um, most other hospitals definitely would have. We um, push the bells extremely large ringing sound goes throughout the entire yeah. perioperative department so all theatres and everyone in the hallways can hear but it also is linked up to the intensive care unit as well so um, those guys will also respond to the emergency and yeah. um, then obviously we just work from there and um, give the care that we need to give before we can you know make another decision afterwards. Yeah. And typically from experience you press the bell don't you think um, Lauren and then every everybody comes oh, yeah. from every different direction and then the SATs are back to being 100%. Yeah, so much help. Too much help. Too much help. You have too much help, but not enough, isn't it? Correct. Absolutely correct. So, you know, obviously from personal experience and by hearing, you know, listening to you both today, you know, working in the recovery room is really challenging, especially when you're dealing with kids, you're dealing, you know, with families and carers who might be, you know, anxious, scared, they might have received maybe a diagnosis or a prognosis that they weren't expecting. So it can be quite challenging and and rewarding um, at the same time. Can you tell me a little bit about how you can provide comfort and reassurance to families as well? Because that's a big part of our role in recovery is actually not just looking after the child, but it's actually looking after that really stressed out parent or caregiver that's present. How do we provide care and support to families in the recovery room? Yeah, so really important, Anne. And I think um, the main thing is that they are reunited with their child, can have a little cuddle and and, and see that their their child's okay reassuring them that how the procedure went, um, checking that they've spoken to the surgeon after the surgery. I think that's really important when they've not spoken to the surgeon yet, they can be a little bit more anxious. So just explaining um, how the procedure went and that it all went 
um, according to plan, reassuring them that their child might be sleepy and that's normal. The child might be upset. And or agitated. Agitated, yep. yep. Do they need to sit down? Do they need some sugar? Sometimes they've not had anything to eat or drink themselves. So making yeah. sure that they're okay and they're safe as well. It's hard to look after patients when the parent is really struggling. Sometimes they need to step out, have yeah. a bit of water, um, sit around in the kitchen for a little bit. And, and too, I think sometimes with like breastfeeding mums, then they're not too sure, can I breastfeed my baby? Yeah. And that's something, would you say, we would definitely yeah. encourage? Yeah, no, 100%, especially with the younger children. Like, well, obviously, it's always the younger children. But yeah, no, breastfeeding is extremely important to do as soon as possible because these patients, the babies have been fasting for, you know, very extended periods of time. And um, at that age, they're definitely a lot more affected by lower blood glucose and whatnot. So yeah, okay. we definitely get on top of that quick. Are you able to give us some useful tips and tricks seeing that you're both clinicians working in a recovery room full of kids, you know, day in, day out, maybe for clinicians who don't necessarily have the exposure as we do working here at RCH where we exclusively look after children. What are some sort of handy tips and tricks that we could give them for other nurses perhaps working in the recovery room? Yeah, so um, I'm sure Jake will agree, but distraction um, mm. We have uh, yeah. lots of different um, things that we can use in our area. So we've got our computers on wheels and we can put like their favourite ABC kids show or movie on. We've got some toys, bubbles are always good. Wave them around in the air and get bubbles um, happening for them. Um, asking parents what's their favourite toy. Um, do they have a favourite um, teddy or some sort of comfort measure um, and getting those out as quickly as possible. Yep. What are some other things, Jay? Yeah, yeah no, all, the, all those kinds of distractions are important. I always get the parents involved as well with that kind of yeah. stuff too. So sort of helping make them feel included, so yeah. make them feel like they're doing a very useful thing, which it is a, definitely a very useful thing, but um, it eases the anxiety of the parent as well or the guardian, I should say, because um, a lot of the time if the guardian is anxious themselves, they, the, the patient will feed off that anxiety. So making them feel just as comfortable as the patient um, is extremely important. And then getting them involved with distractions and whatnot will make them feel a lot more useful and a lot less, you know, helpless because sometimes they do feel like they're helpless and they're like, oh, well, yeah. my child's so vulnerable right now. And then they feel vulnerable. So it is a bit of a domino effect. Clinicians who are listening to us today, I, one of the things that you have to understand is that when the child is in hospital, when a child presents to hospital, typically the parents are present or the caregiver is present the whole time. So we don't ask parents to leave for this procedure. We're going to take the blood pressure. We're going to do parents and caregivers are present the whole time, yeah. which is very different um, to adults. And in saying that, the perioperative journey is the only time that the child and the parent or caregiver are separated from one another. So coming into recovery, they haven't seen their child for, for perhaps half an hour, half a day, 12 hours, whatever it is that surgery is taken. So that's taking, yep. that's why they're so anxious. That's why they're so stressed. So reuniting them is like, as you both have mentioned, is so, so important. What are some of the other uh, sort of tips and tricks you know, handy hints. Of course. So um, we've sort of talked about doing the breastfeeding for the younger children, but also the older children can uh, eat and drink post-anesthetic as well. So we're not as strict as they are generally with the adult patients yeah. in adult hospitals with um, eat and drink post-anesthetic. We do try and start them a little bit earlier. Normally just a, a sip of water or apple juice or even just a sandwich or something is completely okay. They're a higher risk of um, having complications if their blood glucose is a lot lower. So we yeah. do try and, you know, work hard to avoid any extra complications post-anesthetic. Yeah. So we do feed them a bit earlier. 
also with any kinds of monitoring and stuff, if we're pretty satisfied with how the patient's doing and they're looking healthy and they're within normal limits for all their observations, we'll actually pretty much stop monitoring them sometimes. Yeah. So some of the children can get quite distressed, obviously just from the smallest things, even if it's just a blood pressure cuff that's pumping on their arm. Yeah. And that can just be a trigger for them to just go wild. So obviously if you are happy with the way the patient's looking, you think they're within normal limits and there's no real clinical reason that you need to do another blood pressure, just don't do it. Yeah, because um, sometimes you'd find, and I see this often, and I guess you too, Lauren, orientating all our new staff, you'd see that they get some clinicians, some nurses would get so fixated in doing the blood pressure and you're like, mm, can we step back a second? Because the child's really distressed. You're going to get a blood pressure that's going to be probably hypertensive and not accurate. Can yeah. you talk to us a bit more about maybe not intervening if you don't have to? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that I always try to, to teach our new nurses because they do, yeah, as you said, get very fixated and they want to get all the OBS in, have all their, you know, columns filled in on the patient's EMR. Um, but, yeah, I think just having minimal monitoring on unless you really need it. Um, sometimes patients will pull off, kick off their SAT mm -hmm. probe. So maybe even having just the three lead on um, under their clothes, at least you've got, you know, your heart rate and you can monitor something. Yeah, and that's um, something that's different with kids and adults, isn't it? It's, we, you know, with adults, we wouldn't worry about securing drips and wrapping them yeah. up out of sight, out of mind. Why do we do that, I guess, for kids and not with adults? Children are more likely to pull them off, rip yeah. them out, yeah, um, especially the younger children. Sometimes you'll, your cannula's out within a couple of seconds and even though you've taped on their SAT probe, they they get it off. They're, they're very clever. Perfect. And actually it brings me to a point, Jake, that I've heard you speak about this when we do like our pain yeah. uh, talks that you, you've done when mm -hmm. we do outreach education. And, you know, you talk about, yes, if you, you know, you're wrapping them up, sometimes it's actually better. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you, you'll ask a child if they're in pain and they'll say, mm -hmm. yes, they're in mm -hmm. a lot of pain. But when you ask them where the pain mm -hmm. is, where typically yeah. the pain is. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes they'll think that their cannula is sore just because you've literally pointed it out. So yeah, <laughs> sometimes out of sight, out of mind is the best thing to do. So we have lots of different kinds of assessments we use for a pain scale as well. It's not just the zero to 10 pain scale. So we um, use a scale called the FLAC scale can look it up online, but it's a, it's a zero to 10 scale as well. However, it is based off the perception of the nurse more so than the patient. It sort of covers like the current status, if they're crying, if yeah. they're, you know, in Such a obvious, handy tool yeah, it's to a use. great tool to use and you can use it for any age group as well. But it just basically goes over like the, the common signs of pain and you can, you know, you can have a patient who might be sitting in bed playing on their phone saying they're in 10 out of 10 pain, but in your head, you do know that they're probably not necessarily going to be that sore. Yeah. Um, and it could not be pain. It might be that they're anxious about, yeah. you know, having a giant plaster that's on exactly right. and they're saying their pain's out of 10. But when you get yeah. to it, actually, the leg feels okay, but they're just worried that next week's they're formal. That's exactly right. Yeah. So there, there's other anxieties that yeah. the patient's going to be thinking about, whether they're small or big, because the smaller yeah. patients, that anxiety is yeah. the drip that's in their hand because they have no idea what it actually is. So we take the drips out as soon as we possibly can anyway. So if they're going home on the day. If they're going yeah. home and they don't need it, you don't need to keep it in. That's, and, yeah. And you did just mention something about, you know, like older children. And I guess we've really sort of focused on that younger children. But yeah. is there a difference between looking after children, young children, and then our adolescent patients in re in the recovery room? Oh, I think so. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. We so their anxieties are generally going to be for different things. So yeah. it's just working that out and um, sort of setting them up, like I said before, preoperatively for success. So 
if there is anxieties that they're showing preoperatively, we try and get on top of it there and then mm. and um, see if we can do anything, like talk to them and see if there is anything they'd like to do postoperatively that yeah. might help. Um, some of those patients might also deny parents or guardians coming in. That's so, true. Um, I, I find that something really interesting with the adolescent mm. kids that sometimes you will, because we get our parents in all the time and sometimes the, the the teenage kids wake up and then you say, oh, we're just about to call your mum and dad. Oh, actually, no, can you call them when I get to the ward? Um, and that's something, do you find that as well, Lauren? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to ask the patient, are you happy for me to call mum or dad in or, you know, who's here yeah. with you today? And I find that, yeah, you do get those teenagers like, nah, I'm not yet, not yeah. yet. It's so true. And I guess with them too, yes, we're going to be involving the families, but we're actually, they are almost an adult. So we're actually going to be respecting their privacy, their dignity and their wishes throughout our perioperative experience. And sometimes that can be a bit challenging because you're you're sort of at the same time, they're still a child, but they're they're in that in-between stage of being able to make their own decisions too. This brings us to the end of our conversation today. I want to sort of finish by asking you guys one key message that you would um, give for someone looking after children um, in a recovery room. My one take-home message would be um, relating to parents, so getting parents in early and getting them to assist you in caring for their child. Such an important um, message, you know, providing family-centred care and, you know, at child-centred care and so on. It's, it's really vital. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think it's just really important to take a very collaborative approach to caring for the patient. So pretty much everything we've talked about today is all equally important, but also it's really important that you sort of try and do all of it at the same time as well. So whether you're treating the patient for pain pharmacologically or whether you're treating them for anxiety and you're trying to get parents in, as Lauren said, um, I think doing all those things at the same time is really important instead of trying to get tunneled into, oh, maybe it's this, and then you're just treating for one thing, whereas it might be something much simpler to, like like I was saying with the smaller kids, maybe it's just the drip that's annoying them that they just need taken out. So sometimes you can get tunneled into thinking it's something a lot worse than it is. And um, it's just really important to try and cover all those bases and do it in a collaborative effort. But obviously with experience, it gets a lot easier as you do it more often. You feel a lot more confident um, and you sort of do know in the back of your heads it could be A, B or C. So um, as you get more exposure, you do get a lot more confident. And, yeah, yeah, that collaborative care does come a lot easier over time. And it's so true. I think, you know, I've worked in recovery for nearly all my nursing life. And I think it's actually so important to know that as a recovery nurse, as as a PACU nurse, you have to have so much sort of in-depth knowledge of, I guess, anesthesia and what happens intraoperatively, preparing the patient preoperatively, all those sorts of things. And then all that knowledge of all the different types of, you know, what the expected outcomes are, how to deliver best care. Although we are mostly unseen in the recovery room, it's actually so vital in setting that patient up really well for their post-operative journey. Would you both agree with that? Definitely. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. We're just amazing. (laughs) We'll end it on that note. Well, thank you so much, um, both of you, for your time today. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat.